When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on. Good afternoon. This is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams from the New York Post, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And you better listen to me on radio. I'm on every Sunday from 1 to 3. Right now, I want to tell you that with Britain's Prince Empty and his Mimi Megan Yenta that he's married to, we have nearly forgotten another commoner who once nailed an HRH. The HRH was Prince Andrew, who lately we have heard is not a wonderful prince. He is not a non, he is a non-royal treasure. He was busy with Epstein's young house guests, we think. Anyway, his wife was Sarah Ferguson. We called her Fergie, the Duchess of York. Just this week, She was at the 92nd Street Y, shilling her new novel. Sarah Ferguson has always worked for a buck, even though divorced all these years, she still lives with her ex-husband. She's always looking for money. So she has worked, and now she has gotten a new book. It's called A Most Intriguing Lady. It's about love, sex, and a duke's daughter, blah, blah. Fergie then said to the audience, She said, I once met the newspaper editor who actually coined me the Duchess of Pork. Those headlines, she said, caused such grief in my life. It was so much pain. It doesn't matter who you are. The aggravation is terrible. And it was all coined by a person who was no better than anybody else. She also took a photo while some guy sucked her toes. That is not something that is often done around Buckingham. And she worked for Weight Watchers. About her body image even today, this fun-loving ex-Duchess of York responds, Listen, it's a daily struggle. But she says, Now is different from my time with the royal family, in that Brits have started to feel things. They are labeling feelings. They are getting in touch with their emotions, their experiences. We have learned a great deal from you Americans in the past decades. So we asked about her background, and she said, Listen, I love my Irish heritage. It's a major inspiration in my writing. I was once considered an equestrian show jumper. I went to Ireland. I went to Cork. And what did I win for my show jumping? I won a soda bread. And it was the best prize I have ever gotten. And she said, My mother then told me, Never wear bright colors because of your red hair. I listened to that a long time. But, said Fergie, the former Duchess of York, I am now 63, now a grandmother. So here in New York, I just wore all pink one day. And my daughters, that's Bernice Beatrice, And Eugenie, they texted me, and they said, Hey, no matter what you may think, Mom has still got it. Admittedly, she said, I've had some fashion blunders, and I should never have listened to Yves Saint Laurent, who told me to go out in a duvet cover. And she said at the end, Her Majesty the Queen was more a mother to me than my own mother. 
Okay, we're going into a station break, and then I'm going to talk to a couple of people you don't want to miss. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on. The Cindy Adams Show. I am about to speak with David Corrins. He is considered today probably the number one scenic designer on Broadway. He has done something like 51 shows. He has gotten every award there is. He designed Beetlejuice. He designed Hamilton. He's now designing 1,200 other things. He is the number one, and I am now about to speak with David Corrins. We met originally a couple of years ago, and you took me backstage to see the 1700s set that you created for Hamilton. I'd never, yeah. nobody has ever seen anything as fantastic as that. The show spanned 30 years, countless locations. Tell me about that. How did that even begin in your consciousness? Hamilton? Yeah, how did you start? How did you know what to do? Um, well, I mean, I, uh, I met with our phenomenally talented writer, Lynn, and our incredibly talented director, Tommy, and we talked a little bit about how we wanted the show to not have to um, ever pause to go from location to location so that we knew that we had to make some kind of a metaphor for the time period and the show um, that we were depicting. And so we really landed on this idea of what would it be like if we were building the foundation of the country, um, which is kind of what the founding fathers were doing at the time. And so that's really what our design became, which was a, a really a look at um, what it meant to be creating the foundation of a country and scaffolding that up. And that's kind of a, a version of what the, the design is. It had. I don't quite understand what you just said. Uh, I, I understand what you're saying, but my my brain doesn't take it in. There was something like 51 numbers. You had a, a brick wall, and you had red brick. You had to redo bricks if they faded. Tell, can you tell us? Since we all loved Hamilton, can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Um, so when when you design a show, you do a lot of research, right? And so because, as you said, the show takes place um, in 51 musical numbers, or at the time it was like 51 different, you know, it's not anymore, but um, uh, different, many, many different locations, you do research, right? And when you do that research, yeah. you come up with fairly realistic-looking places. Um, we knew that we didn't want to have to change painstakingly from one location to the other, so what we did was we came up with a structure that could service the entire show. Um, and that structure was kind of a tapestry of early American architecture that um, was evocative of everything from a town square to, you know, lo interior locations. But that, that wooden scaffolding structure around it really was meant to be um, – almost like people, carpenters at the time, were building this big, huge brick wall and this kind of foundational structure. And so it works in this metaphoric way, which is that, um, you know, these days when you see buildings getting built in New York, you see all that metal scaffolding. But back in the day, they would build these kind of wooden structures up against brick brick walls, and you would see them laying bricks one at a time, um, you know, for for you know in the in the late 1700s early 1800s and that's really what our design is um and so that's what i mean by a sort of foundational thing and a, and a look at kind of scaffolding up um uh, next to a building david what what is your background how did you become a stupid question but as how did you become a set designer what was your background well, I started, um, you know, rearranging furniture in my home, in my, in my, uh, my childhood bedroom. And, um, <laughs> and then I, I was kind of a, I was a musician and an athlete and a, and a theater kid. And I knew that I didn't want to be a performer. Um, so I took early courses um, about beginning techniques and design, which taught me a little bit about scenery and lighting and costume and sound design. And I had a real talent to think visually. Um, and so over the years, I continued to hone my craft. I, I went to Williamstown Theater Festival and worked my years up from an internship all the way to eventually running the design department. Um, I got a, a specialized degree 
at UMass Amherst um, from the Commonwealth Honors College with a concentration in design. And then when I moved to New York, I was assisting lots of other designers while I was building my design career. And I just continuously said yes to projects that weren't necessarily theatrical. And so I started doing rock concerts and interiors, architecture, hospitality, immersive experiences, and just on and on and on, film, television, theater. And so I learned a lot of different skills from all of those different disciplines and really try and apply them to other disciplines. So the things that you learn when you're making a piece of theater are very different than what you learn when you're making a, an award show or an immersive experience or a movie, let's say. But um, they're all sort of different, different ways to attack and solve similar kinds of design challenges and creative challenges. And that I've always really loved. The sort of variety of the work helps make all the work better. Okay, you've done you've done maybe maybe more than twenty five Broadway shows, and you know we Beetle Beetlejuice, so so many of them. Tell me, how does it begin? With research, with talking to the director, with opening a drawing in your studio, we don't understand because it's so magnificent for us. How does it begin? Yeah. It begins, it begins with a conversation with the director, and it begins with um, uh, reading the script. Always reading the script, listening to the music, a conversation with the director, and then, yes, a tremendous amount of research. Like I said, I like to do research in two different ways. The first is very realistic research. So if it's a house like Beetlejuice, kind of getting research that might depict specifically what that is, or in Hamilton's case, you know, doing research of what the Schuyler Mansion might look like or a town square might look like or Washington's tent. Um, but then I also like to do the layer of research that is much more abstract. So with Beetlejuice, I did a lot of research that might be like cobwebs or infinite looking tunnels or, you know, other things like that that are sort of more abstract and just inspirational. And what I try and do is answer the physical needs moment to moment of the show while thinking both in metaphor and on a literal plane. And then we start sketching. We start sketching both in top-down view, like a ground plan or a floor plan, how people and furniture and scenery are going to move through the space. And then also in elevation, like a front-on view that will help you give you the shapes of the walls or the environment that people are going to move around. And you bring those sketches into the conversations with the director and your collaborators, and you bring all that research in, and you kind of talk about things that sort of feel like the project or the show that you're doing. Okay, so and then from there, eventually, you'll move into like model form and renderings and other other ways to communicate your ideas. What's the difference? I know the enormous difference, but to explain to those of us listening, the difference between doing sets for Broadway or sets versus television. You've done the Oscars. What 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 is the basic difference in 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 the two functions? Well, yeah, the basic difference is in a piece of theater. Um, the audience's experience is always scaled to a six-foot-tall or a five-foot-something-tall human being. And so in a theater, the only way that you have to control the eye of the audience member is through lighting design, right? The, the set designer creates the world, and then the lighting designer reveals it. And so if you're an audience member, you can, even though there's a song going on downstage center, you can move your eyes around the space and the environment. But in a piece of theater or, I'm sorry, in a piece of TV or an award show or a movie, you can zoom in and, and really um, force the audience to see exactly what and only what you want them to see. So, for instance, um, if you think about the filming of Hamilton versus the, you know, on Disney Plus versus the yeah, live okay. theatrical experience yeah. – you you know, if if you're watching the Schuyler sisters in on the theater, you can see them all full body standing there, walking on the turntable, singing, you know, the greatest city in the world. But in Disney Plus, they might cut in directly on Angelica's face and her entire face would be the size of the screen. It gives you a different level of attachment to to the character. It gives you a different level of attachment to the emotion of the song, and really the filmmaker, the cinematographer, and the editor have a big say in what the production design looks like, as opposed to in theater, where you're always seeing things full scale to the scale of a person. 
So that so brings up the, the when you're designing. That brings up on the next question. You are so talented, and you've gotten so many awards, and you're probably the number one designer on Broadway. What does that mean? When do you have creative control, or must you listen to the director? How does it work? <laughs> um, it works. Uh, you must listen to the director. <laughs> you okay. always must listen to the director. Okay. Um, you know that said, I think that uh, a partnership with the director or a relationship with the director is a partnership. And um, when you're when it's the best form of collaboration, you don't really know when the conceiving of space. Uh, you know, when, when one party has come up with something versus the other. And so the best collaborations are the ones that are seamless. And I guess I would imagine that you wouldn't hire me um, or one wouldn't hire me if they didn't want, you know, my opinion, my sensibility, et cetera. And so uh, the, director, the director rules and um, you work for them. But I like to hope that when they hire you that you work with them, not for them. Did you ever screw up? Did your sets ever screw up? Did they ever fall down? <laughs> Anything? Of course. Well, uh, tell in me. 2001, in 2001, um, I, uh, I founded a theater company, uh, a not-for-profit theater company um, with Carolyn Cantor, and we the very first play that we ever produced um, was a revival of Calderon de la Barca's Life's a Dream, and we had um, a cave set, which was a kind of a pop-up mountainous structure that came out of the floor. And on the very first night we ever, you know, I was the producer and the designer. And on the very first night we ever had it in front of the audience, the cables broke and the entire thing <laughs> fell over. And I walked out of the audience, down the hall, down the aisle, went on stage. I said, welcome everyone to Edge Theater Company. And I picked the mountain up and I sat there for the rest of the scene and then gently put it down <laughs> once the scene was over. So what did the audience applaud? What happened? Of course, everyone thought it was like the most endearing and incredible thing. People love mess ups. Were you not panicked? Were, did you not panic? Were human. Um, I mean, I guess inside I, I panicked, but I wanted, uh, you know, as a producer and as a designer, you feel so <laughs> much responsibility to the storytelling that you'll do whatever you can. Yeah, I understand. To stop the emergency and keep the audiences um, and the performers' experience continuing forward. Okay, I'm talking to David Corrins, who's the number one set designer on Broadway and probably everywhere else, and including my living room. So if when the show is over, David, where do these sets go? Uh, I suppose it depends on... Um, which sets you're talking about. If you're talking about Broadway sets, oftentimes we try and scavenge them um, uh, you know, for potentially future road productions or touring productions or maybe like European productions. But in general, Broadway shows get put straight into a dumpster, sadly. You mean a whole huge set that costs so much money gets junked? That's what I mean. I You don't save the walls for something else? No. I mean, you have a bunch of different issues. One of them is it costs a lot of money to store. The other is they're oftentimes made out of very specific materials. And also the last thing is it's, it's the intellectual property is owned ultimately by the designer. And so you can't really save them and then give them to another production because inevitably the wall that I want for a certain production or the way that it's specifically built is, you know, probably not going to work for other things. They try and save some of the things, you know, large curtains, soft goods, lighting fixtures, things like that. Um, but in general, the stuff is always so specific. That's why every show and project looks so different from the other one. You mean uh, I couldn't take a wall from one show and stick it in my apartment? I mean, you're the great and powerful you, so if you want that, I could probably arrange it. But oh, that's a nice you probably thing. don't want it. They're, yeah. meant, they're meant to look really good from 70 feet away. They're not meant to look good right up close. So on, on any set, is it done on a tight deadline, On a tight, also on a tight financial line? I mean, you yes. are so uh, lavish and fabulous. Yes. How does that I work? Would say, I would say that... Um, you know, first of all, the work expands the amount of time allotted. There is wet paint on every single project, every single time when the audience shows up. That's a, you can guarantee that. No one ever, like, 
you know, flies in completely done um, and is sitting there twiddling their thumbs before the audience shows up. That's number one. And number two, I remember like there was a great designer who said to me when I, and I was just coming up, I said, what is it like to design at the Metropolitan Opera? Or like, what's it like to design at these big venues? And they said to me, the problems are the exact same. Just add three zeros onto the back of every number. And it's really (laughs) true. You know, there's like, there's just like never really enough money to do what you want. And I think that's because we try and show up to all the projects with boundless imagination. And we try and think of the best possible way to service the project. And I think the people who are really successful are people who find a way to make what shows up on stage or on film or on camera the most extraordinary, imaginative-looking thing, but that they can do it on budget. And that's a challenge in its own right. Some of your big stars, did they ever walk into wet paint? Did they ever screw up or kick a set? by accident and it <laughs> fell down because I was a klutz when I was a kid and I was always walking into the wrong thing, opening the wrong door. So doesn't that happen with actors sometimes? Uh, sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, we've had a lot of near misses. Um, we've had a lot of misses and um, luckily, uh, and I'm knocking on wood, both actual wood and my head, um, nothing, you <laughs> know, dr- super dramatic has ever happened. Okay, so tell us now. You told us in the beginning. Tell us again because I'm brain dead. What are you doing now? You're doing so many things. Tell us, tell us, tell us. Um, well, you know, I, I run a 20-person um, creative suite and agency studio that basically helps any brand, organization, artist, institution tell the best version of the story that they possibly can. So whether that's Lin-Manuel Miranda and Tommy Kale trying to tell the story of Hamilton or that is David Blaine trying to do a Las Vegas magic residency or whatever it is. So we um, we have coming to Broadway this summer, Here Lies Love, which was the David Byrne Fat Boy Slim musical that happened at the public theater, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. And we are so unbelievably thrilled and excited about it. And we're doing it in this incredible immersive way where we're basically ripping out all of the seats from the orchestra level and we're building this massive 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 structure where people will be able to stand inside of it and sit on the sides of it up looking down into it and it's going to completely change the way people have ever seen a broadway show um totally thrilling and very very exciting like i said i'm also directing david blaine's show in las vegas it's actually where i am right now i'm sort of backstage uh, about to go into rehearsal okay before i let you go one more question did you design your own home (laughs) <laughs> um, I, uh, I mean, I picked the furniture and I scavenged it together. Yes. <laughs> if that's what you mean. Um, people for years have always imagined like that my apartment has, you know, walls that fly or spin yeah. around yeah. or, yeah. you know, furniture yeah. that stores into the walls. I, you know, I think that I'm actually a minimalist at heart and that even though I spend all day trying to make fabulous environments for people to live and for stories to, you know, to, to be told inside of them. When I get home, I want simplicity. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're the number one, and thank you for coming on, sweetie. I loved it. I love oh, talking to you. Thanks for having me. I love you, too. I'll talk thanks, to you. Thanks, honey. Bye. Bye. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. Uno. He's your numero uno. The Cindy Adams Show. I am going to speak to Howard Safer. He was our 39th commissioner, our police commissioner, from 1996 to 2000. First, Howard, we have enough problems now, but tell us the tumult of those years. Giuliani was mayor, was he not? He was. Tell me, tell me, what was it like those years? It it was great. We reduced crime more than any administration ever. Uh, We made the city the safest large city in America, and we did it through assertive policing. When you came in, it was 
junky the way it is now. Is that not the truth, or don't I remember correctly? It was beginning to change. Bill Bratton before me had made some progress, and then we accelerated it and kept it going until uh, we had reduced crime to really acceptable levels, not that any crime is acceptable, but lower than it had been in 40 years. I'm not going to ask you yet, but I will ask you how you did it. First, give us, not everybody might remember Howard Safer as well as I do. Tell us your background. I know all about your uncle. We'll talk about that in a minute. But your own background. Well, I started my career with the New York State Parkway Police, and then I became a federal narcotic agent, uh, which became DEA. I I rose to the rank of assistant director of DEA, and then I became chief of the Federal Witness Protection Program, and then I became chief of all operations for the U.S. Marshal Service. And then Rudy asked me to become fire commissioner, which I did for two and a half years, and then I became police commissioner. One of the things that maybe not everyone knows, but the wonderful story about your uncle. Tell us about your uncle and who he was, because it's a great, great story before we go into New York City today. Well, growing up, I had an an uncle. His name was Louis Wiener. Uh, He was a New York City detective, and he became a New York City first-grade detective, which is quite an accomplishment. And before that, he was a Marine, and he was a Marine in World War II. He was, to me, a hero. He fought at Okinawa and Guadalcanal with the 1st Marine Division and was always my idol and role model, and I wanted to be like Uncle Lou. So uh, I always knew I wanted to go into law enforcement, and I joined the Marines in, uh, in 1960. What about your uncle's, what didn't he, didn't he capture the bank robber? Yes, he was. Uh, Tell us about that, please. Yeah, my my uncle became very famous as a New York City detective because he arrested Willie Sutton. Yeah. Willie Sutton Sutton was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Yeah. And he was a famous bank robber, and he was famous because he supposedly was asked why he robbed banks. And he said, that's because that's where the money is. I, re- I remember that. I absolutely, whatever happened to him? He died in prison, I guess. But whatever happened to him? Uh, he, he was convicted of many bank robberies. And I, I think he got sentenced to 40 or some odd years. So uh, I assume he probably did die in prison. A, a, a man who would have captured him like your uncle, does anything special get done for your uncle? Does he get upgraded in the police department or something? He did. He was a second-grade detective, and he got promoted to first grade, which is as high as you can go as a detective. Listen, if you were back with us as top cop now, what would you do about the gun situation today? Tell us, please. Well, I would reinstitute the street crime unit that we had. I would continue the policy that we had at the time of stop, question, and frisk, which which I have to point out was done constitutionally at the time. And that sends a very clear signal to criminals that they need to be afraid of police. We don't want the public to be afraid of police, but we want criminals to know that if they're carrying guns, if they're committing crimes, they have a certainty of arrest. And that was the message that we sent. And because of it, we we reduced crime in double figures. We reduced homicides to the lowest figures in decades. And criminals knew that we were out there and they were going to get arrested, unlike what's happening today. Why, Why can't that be replicated now? Well, well, it can, but it takes a number of things. One, it takes changing these crazy bail laws that we have, because yeah. right now somebody gets arrested, for instance, carrying a gun. They're out on the street that day or the day after, 
They yeah. get arrested for carrying a gun again, and they get put right back out on the street. Uh, and it's even worse. We have people who were convicted of assault and murder who were put back out on the street and committed additional assaults and murders. So, you know, police are only one-third of the judicial system. You know, there's the prosecutors and the courts. And if the prosecutors are like the prosecutors we have in New York who refuse to do their job and, and enforce the law, and we have legislators in Albany who pass these crazy bail laws where everything is not bail eligible, then basically criminals say, why shouldn't I go in and smash and grab things in, in Nordstrom's or Macy's or wherever? Because I'm not going to get prosecuted for shoplifting. I'm going to get a desk appearance ticket, and I'm going to be out on the street the next day. Okay. But if you do, were able to do that then... Why can we not do that now? I understand what you're saying, but why isn't there someone out there telling us how to handle this? Why is this situation in New York City becoming so aggressive that people like me won't walk out for dinner? I won't walk for three blocks. Tell me, Howard, how can that be adjudicated? Well, it can be fixed, but first let me say it's not the police department. Commissioner Sewell is a good commissioner. She knows what she's doing. She has a great background. She was a real cop. But she has to be given the instructions by those in charge that she can go and do what she knows how to do. What's happened is all of these leftist organizations have said the stop, question, and frisk is racist and it's unconstitutional, which is totally untrue. The fact is the people who benefit the most from stop, question, and frisk are the people in those underserved and minority communities who are the major victims of crime. Well, well, how can a police commissioner, she doesn't have the ability, or she's hamstrung, and she always reads instead of speaks to us, and there's always Eric Adams standing behind her. We understand that she is limited to a certain degree. What could she do? We don't even see what she could do. Well, you know, she, she she started somewhat. She she put the plainclothes units back on the street. But again, it comes down to if you can't get these people incarcerated and keep them in jail, they're going to just go back out and do the same thing. Plus the fact that, you know, Rudy was single-yearly directed to reduce crime in this city. Yeah. And he was not afraid of leftist people saying that they didn't like what he was doing because he knew that reducing crime was what the public really wanted. And that's why he was so popular when he was mayor, because he did reduce crime. You know, Cindy, I did 76 town hall meetings when I was commissioner. Yeah. And I didn't hear about police brutality. I didn't hear about offensive policing, I heard that they wanted more police in their communities so they could be safe. And that's really what the public wants. Unfortunately, what we're doing is we're listening in this woke generation to the loudest voices. We're not listening to the people who really deserve to be protected. So if a police commissioner is today hamstrung, as you have already said, how can the daily robberies be stopped? How? How? Who's going to stand there and say to a guy, no, put it down, and or he's going to get a bullet in his head? How? What's the way to stop it? Well, you know, what's happening, and sadly what's happening, is uh, some of these big stores are hiring private security with guard dogs. Uh, I know, yeah. And, and, and that's ridiculous because that's that's not the private sector's responsibility. That's government's responsibility. We need to protect people. We need to protect businesses. And you can't do it if people are not going to get prosecuted. I mean, you know, we have the best policemen in the world. We have the best police department in the world. But they need to be given the latitude to do what they know how to do. And unfortunately, that does not appear to be the case right now. Okay. 
That so it's the woke situation. I got that. It's the woke situation by, about many things. I understand that. Tell me about your feelings about marijuana and gambling, and and many other things that are coming into our city, which is not my cup of tea. But tell me what you think. Yeah, well, I'm I'm certainly uh, these days, I guess, in the minority. But I have always believed that marijuana was a gateway drug. I spent most of my life dealing with and arresting people uh, who were dealing in marijuana. And I I believe that we should not legalize something that changes your psyche, not for the the good. And I I don't think I've ever met a heroin or meth, meth addict who didn't start with marijuana. So, you know, that's my opinion. It's the opinion of most of the people I know in law enforcement. But it is certainly not the opinion of the general public, as we see by these polls. So you're going back to the same problem that we have from the one thing to the other thing. There's no way to undo something that's been done already. Is that correct? It's it's very hard. But, you know, I have always said that 80 percent of the crime in this country has a nexus to drugs and guns. If you deal with drugs and guns, which is what I did when I was police commissioner, you reduce crime and you make the city safe. And, and but then again, I can't, you know, I, I'm saying this over and over, but it's, it's really critical. You know, cops can go out and arrest people with guns. Cops can go out and make drug cases. But if they don't get prosecuted, it doesn't mean anything. So the current police situation, they don't want to come to you for any of your opinions from the old days. Is that it? Well, I'm sure. Uh, well, nobody in New York has asked my opinions. Others have. But uh, and, you know, uh, I don't to be honest, uh, I think Commissioner Sewell knows what to do. I certainly know that the chiefs and the cops know what to do, but they need to be unleashed to do it. OK, I got that. You yourself, you played yourself on NYPD Blue. What was that like and what how did you know how to play yourself? You're not an actor. What what did you do? <laughs> You're a lousy actor. What did you do? You're right. I'm. A, you're right. I am a lousy actor. <laughs> but it was easy because I played the commissioner. <laughs> well, okay. So you didn't know how to do that either. Okay, go ahead. How did you know how to do to play yourself? Well, you know, uh, one. I'm probably a bit of a ham in my <laughs> yeah. in my own head. But uh, the people, you know, Stephen Bochco and uh, Jimmy Schmidt and. Uh, the whole cast were incredibly helpful. Uh, they gave me, I think I had 10 or 15 lines, but it was all about things I did. I, what I did on NYPD Blue was I promoted Jimmy Schmitz to first grade detective. And that was something <laughs> I do every day. So I know how to do that. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Now, let me let me go sideways. This is not your thing at the moment, but you were fire commissioner. What is that kerfuffle that we just had with the fire chief that nobody ever heard of in the first place? Who who, who is it? Who was she? How did she become fire chief? I don't know anything about her background. I know she worked in the government, but I, but she had no fire experience, but neither did I. But I had uniformed first responder experience, and I had managed large organizations I knew how to manage large organizations. I knew how to how to lead. Uh, you know, there, there's one thing that my uncle Lou did tell me that there's two ways to manage, either with a velvet glove or a sandpaper glove. And the sandpaper glove usually doesn't work too well. And that's kind of what happened in the fire department. Uh, she demoted three chiefs without telling her staff, and oh. that's you know. And, okay. the, and you have to understand that the fire department culture is unlike any other culture I've ever encountered. They are incredibly insolent, incredibly close-knit. Uh, when I used to promote somebody, I'd be promoting him and his family would be standing there, and there'd be three or four other people in fire department uniforms. So you know, they, they care about each other tremendously. They take care of each other very well. So when she promoted, when she demoted three chiefs, and didn't tell her senior chiefs, that that is something that's never been done before. Okay, so we're talking about 
dumb. So <laughs> let me ask some other things. Have you ever, in all of your history, Howard Saver, you've been fire commissioner, you've been New York City police commissioner, have you ever been really scared? Oh, everybody is scared. I you know, I worked undercover for six years. Uh, I was involved in shooting, which, where unfortunately I shot somebody who had a gun. Ooh. But, you know, of, you know, I heard this definition of bravery the other day. Bravery is when you're scared to death, but you do what you have to do. And okay. I think that's I think that's really true. Anybody who says they're not scared when they're in a situation where they can get hurt is just not telling the truth. Everybody gets scared. Would you want your kid to be a top cop? Well, you know, my daughter is a retired FBI agent, and she did very well. Uh, if they have the calling, because that's what it is. Cindy, it's not a job. I used to tell people I never worked a day in my life because I loved what I, what I did. I went to work every day saying, I can't believe they pay me to do this. And my wife used to say, they really don't. <laughs> but, no, I got that. Tell me about but, the subways. How can we improve the situation on the subways? More cops, is that it? More cops. And I saw recently that crime, at least for the last month, has gone down significantly on the subways. Police presence is very important. And this one thing, which is something that I, I really believe in, you have to enforce the fair jumping law. How? How? Very simple. You see somebody jump over a turnstile, you arrest them. You don't see a lot of it. But you do see a lot of it. If you're looking for it, we arrested lots of people for jumping over subway turnstiles and solved drug cases, murders, took guns off the street. Before the Giuliani administration, there were 250,000 people a month evading public, public subway fares. It was like an Olympic sport. We started enforcing it. The subways became safer. We solved a bunch of crimes. We had the, you probably don't remember this, but we had a horrific assault of a woman in Central Park because incredible brain damage. And then a woman who owned the cleaning store was murdered the next day. We caught that guy because we had fingerprinted him jumping over a subway turnstile. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. Before I let you go, just tell us now what you are doing now. We don't know. Well, I'm I'm on a number of public company boards, and I'm on a number of pro bono boards, and that's what keeps me busy. And uh, my son, who took over my consulting business, occasionally rolls out the commissioner for advice and things that he's doing in other cities. But, you know, I'm getting uh, mature, which is spelled O-L-D. <laughs> and uh, as, I, as I get older, I want to spend more time with my family, with my grandkids. But I'm always available for anybody who needs advice or help. And like I said, I've been reached out to by people not in New York City uh, for advice and help. And when that happens, I go and I help. Okay, I'm about to ask you just one thing and let you go. Will we still have a nice, large New York Police Department coming down in the future? Well, I believe that. I believe that, you know, politics and law enforcement are, are cyclical. I believe in seven-year cycles. Uh, I saw what it took about seven years for de Blasio to undo everything that Rudy and Bloomberg <laughs> yeah. did. And so I, 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 I think we will see another cycle. And, you know, New York is a wonderful, resilient city. The NYPD will continue to do well. They just need to have the other two-thirds of the justice system work with them. And that's not happening now. Thank you, Howard Safer, for talking to me. I love talking to you. I love you. Thank you, sweetie. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on. The Cindy Adams Show. Hi, it's me. I'm back again. This week was Women's Day. Radio station, my station, this station, WABC, I'm on Sundays from 1 to 2 p.m., 
made me the Grand Marshal. I am now going to remember. I'm going to go back a long time to my teens. There were three who were not gentlemen. One was a doctor. One was an agent. One a photographer. None warranted criminal investigation, nor did I even know there was such a possibility. But all these thousands of years later, I have not forgotten. Many of us of a certain age have paid the price. We have all talked about it. Back then, California types met buses in from Wyoming, Utah, who knows where'sville. They looked the men to score physically with starlets, who were then looking to score professionally. Like maybe these guys thought Lana Turner was as great an actress as Maria Uspenskaya. I don't know, but I know that this is what they did. Gratefully, the situation is now being addressed. But maybe, just maybe, it's going a bit far. I mean, female clothing, no bras, no drawers, sequins up your back crack. I have to tell you a story that's true. A middle-aged attorney whom I knew well was in an elevator. There was one other occupant, a young female. A door opened as they got to the floor. He allowed her to precede him. She berated him. She screamed, you're stupid. We are equals. How dare you limit me? He became stunned, and he now says he doesn't know how to comport himself. Gratefully, the situation is now becoming addressed, but maybe, just maybe, we might have gone too far. All I want to say is I'm behind the women's movement. I'm behind anything we can do to help us. But when I started my job at the New York Post 41 years ago, I didn't ask for anything special. I showed up. I hit my marks. I did everything I was supposed to do. I worked just like anyone else does. That's all I'm asking of my sisters. And I hope we are all taken care of in the future. And it is now time for me to sign off. And I thank you for listening. This is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams, from the New York Post and from WABC. Thank you for listening. This is New York's talk leader, the crown jewel of talk radio. WABC New York and 107.1 WLIR Hampton Bays. 77 WABC News starts. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. This is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams from the New York Post, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And you better listen to me on radio. I'm on every Sunday from 1 to 3. Right now, I want to tell you that with Britain's Prince Empty and his Mimi Megan Yenta that he's married to, we have nearly forgotten another commoner who once nailed an HRH. The HRH was Prince Andrew, who lately we have heard is not a wonderful prince. He is not a non, he is a non-royal treasure. He was busy with Epstein's young house guests. We think anyway, his wife was Sarah Ferguson. We called her Fergie, the Duchess of York. Just this week, she was at the 92nd Street Y, shilling her new novel. Sarah Ferguson has always worked for a buck, even though divorced all these years, she still lives with her ex-husband. She always, she's always looking for money. So she has worked, and now she has gotten a new book. It's called A Most Intriguing Lady. It's about love, sex, and a duke's daughter, blah, blah. Fergie then said to the audience, she said, I once met the newspaper editor who actually coined me the Duchess of Pork. Those headlines, she said, caused such grief in my life. It was so much pain. 
It doesn't matter who you are. The aggravation is terrible. And it was all coined by a person who was no better than anybody else. She also took a photo while some guy sucked her toes. That is not something that is often done around Buckingham. And she worked for Weight Watchers. About her body image even today, this fun-loving ex-Duchess of York responds, Listen, it's a daily struggle. But she says, Now is different from my time with the royal family in that Brits have started to feel things. They are labeling feelings. They are getting in touch with their emotions, their experiences. We have learned a great deal from you Americans in the past decades. So we asked about her background, and she said, Listen, I love my Irish heritage. It's a major inspiration in my writing. I was once considered an equestrian show jumper. I went to Ireland. I went to Cork. And what did I win for my show jumping? I won a soda bread. And it was the best prize I have ever gotten. And she said, My mother then told me, Never wear bright colors because of your red hair. I listened to that a long time. But, said Fergie, the former Duchess of York, I am now sixty-three, now a grandmother. So here in New York, I just wore all pink one day. And my daughters, that's Bernice, Beatrice, and Eugenie, they texted me, and they said, Hey, no matter what you may think, Mom has still got it. Admittedly, she said, I've had some fashion blunders, and I should never have listened to Yves Saint Laurent, who told me to go out in a duvet cover. And she said at the end, Her Majesty the Queen was more a mother to me than my own mother. Okay, we're going into a station break, and then I'm going to talk to a couple of people you don't want to miss. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on. The Cindy Adams Show. I'm going to sign off and hope you will listen to me again next Sunday at 1 o'clock. Thank you. It's Cindy Adams signing off. WABC Radio is proud to celebrate 100 years. From October 1st, 1921, to music radio, to talk radio's crown jewel, worldwide and beyond. WABC, And WLIRFM Hampton Bays. From around the world to around the block, this is a WABC Afternoon News Brief. 46 and clear. It is Sunday, March 12th. Good afternoon. I'm Yao Bonsu. Former Trump fixer Michael Cohen will testify before a Manhattan jury tomorrow. Many believe an indictment on former President Donald Trump is.